So uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians, continuing our series there. And I'll uh, up front ask for your, your patience uh, this week and today in particular. I've had a little bit of my um, head symptoms flare up. And so uh, if I'm a little bit delayed, just ask for your patience and grace, all right? But the good news is the way we teach the Bible at Cross of Grace, uh, I'm not coming up with a ton of ideas, things that I think are interesting and sharing them every week. We are walking through the Bible verse by verse. So if all else fails, someone can always get up here, read the Bible verse by verse, and give a brief explanation. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, uh, made us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Lord, I pray to give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Sustain me that I might serve my brothers and sisters. Amen. Well, has anybody in this room, perhaps under 40, uh, heard the term main character energy? Anybody heard main character energy? Yes. You all have Instagram or TikTok, don't you? This is just an exposure moment. Um, look at them and point and say, how dare you? Um, now, main character energy was this term that I was intrigued by, and I found a piece in the New Yorker from, I think it was last year. Uh, and, it, and main character energy, this term, came from a social media video. Uh, the video is this interesting kind of montage online of beautiful things and, and scenes happening, and this person doing a voiceover saying the following. You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Uh, in the New York Beast, they find this one girl, Britta Thorpe, who moved uh, from where she was to a new place. She changed careers, and then she made her bio, quote, CEO of hashtag main character energy. Her account is now primarily, as you could guess, self-portraits. Her on the beach as the main character. Shopping downtown, main character. Posing in front of a mirror, main character. She sums, up it, she sums it up this way. I make a pretty great main character. 
Others uh, would post these things that are like, here's, here's some tips for how to make yourself the main character of your life. One person shared the tip that you should never, when you go to the supermarket, uh, get the big shopping cart. You look like a, like, you know, like a side character if you have that background character. The way you do it, you go, you go to the supermarket and you take one of those little baskets and you fill it up with like fresh vegetables and especially, this is important, a very large baguette. The baguette is sticking out of the basket. You have it in the crook of your arm. You're walking to the checkout line. Everybody else looks like a side character. Who's the main character? It's you. You're the main character, right? You have all these tips going on. Um, another person was like, main character energy is whenever you see one of those things that spin around, those little like revolving doors, you have to spin as long as you want and just take over the whole door. And that's main character energy. Now, here's the, here's the irony that I see in this trend. I don't think anybody has to be encouraged to have main character energy. I don't think there's like a shortage in the world of main character energy. All of us, I think deep down, want to be the main character in everyone else's life. Somebody forgets that you had a big thing going on. You're like, how dare you? This is the plot, guys. You know, oh, I forgot you had that interview. Ah, oh, like... You know, how'd your, how'd, how did that date go? We broke up three months ago. Oh, oh, sorry. Like this is, this is the way we live our life. And sometimes we carry that into our faith. Uh, many people often think that spirituality or religion exists to help us fulfill our story. Meaning that we're the plot and, you know, if that can help us, great. If this spirituality or religion can help us, even when we think about God, we can think of God. I mean, God is out there, but he's primarily there to support us as the main character of our lives. But Ephesians 2 lays out a very different story as we saw last week. Ephesians 2 laid out the fact that, well, we did indeed take the pen, as it were, from God and decide to write our own story. But it is a story that doesn't lead to perfect fulfillment and joy and happiness and no anxiety. It is a tragic story, a story where when we take the pen, it leads to deadness. We follow well, we follow demonic forces. We, follow, we go along with the world. We follow the, the sinful desires of even our own heart. And the result is this. Not only do we tragically destroy our story and the stories of those around us, we then come under the right and justice and merciful justice of God who cannot allow injustice that continues to reign on the earth. And so the, the story that we would have written with the pen as the main character led to death and destruction. But verse four interrupts with those two glorious words, but God. We have this story, it's going this way and it's gonna end in death and yet God, as it were, jumps back into the story and intervenes. And he not only sends Christ to die on the cross for our sins, he then makes us alive that we might see it. He then raises us to new life with Christ. He then seats us with Christ and gives us an eternal trajectory of hope and joy and glory. And yet for all of that in Ephesians 2, all of that, Paul knows that we still have a temptation and a tendency to think, oh, excellent, the Lord has restored us to the rightful place of being the main character again. Thank you, Lord. That was a tough spot I got into, but now I'll take it from here. 
And Paul knows this, that, that when it comes to our salvation, he, he's going to really push on us today. He's going to force us to see that at one, when it comes to salvation, we really did not accomplish any of it. The summary that kind of hangs over this part of Ephesians is that salvation is none of us and all of him. And a lot is at stake here because if salvation is, well, some of us, then we might be able to carry that into other parts of life. Well, my marriage needs to be, you know, about me. And this relationship needs to be about me. This thing needs to be about me. But if at the end of the day, we went from death to life solely based on the grace of God, then all of a sudden we're like, hey, listen, whatever God wants of me. That's where Paul's going to take us at the very end. So the headline again, salvation is none of us and all of him. None of us and all of him. So first, we're going to cover what we are saved without. We're going to go saved without, saved by, saved through, and saved for. The first will probably take the longest. Saved without. This is Paul's kind of driving point here. He's laid out salvation, but he wants to be explicit about something. He says, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And it's almost like he pauses and remembers that all of us are giving off pretty strong main character energy. So he turns and says, and this is not of your own doing. And we're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. Now, here's one of the key questions grammatically in this this phrase. This is not your own doing. What is this referred to? What, what, what's the this? Because we're like, well, well, maybe it's one of those situations where, where obviously we need help. Obviously, no, we're imprisoned uh, and we need help. And maybe it's like one of those, you know, you know, those stories, heroic stories where the, 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 one of the characters is locked up and jailed up. And so somebody brings a boat right up next to this big sailing ship, gets close to the prison and they're calling out here and they throw in something and they pull off the bars But the main character stands up, and you realize they're going to have to make a heroic leap. I mean, the boat is there, and they did break the, you know, the bars off, but this guy is going to have to take a running, flying, heroic leap through the air in slow motion, grabs one of the ropes, swings onto the deck, and you're like, well, that was impressive. Listen, I mean, obviously those other characters did a great job bringing the boat, you know, and pulling the bars off, but this other character, did you see that slow motion leap? What, what a character. What a main character, right? And so Paul knows this. And so the question is, okay, well, what's the, what's the this that is not your own doing? And here's where Paul, this is where the phrase, I'm going to use some grammar here, but the phrase is intended to take in all of verse 8, meaning all of salvation and grace, and faith, and even to refer probably back through Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, all of this, do you you remember this? Zombies, all of this, the Frankenstein stuff, all of the deadness, all of that going from there to life, all of that, the grace that was given to you, all of the salvation, and even the faith by which you receive that salvation, this is not your own doing. And I know some grammar nerds here are like, but I really want to know about the neuter uh, uh, pronouns here. What's going on with that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, This is where the ESV study Bible, I think, was actually the best summary here. It's a great study Bible. It, It says as follows. The Greek pronoun is neuter, while grace and faith are feminine. 
So normally, the, the, the neuter would refer to a neuter or feminine to the feminine, but the fact that they don't, it doesn't match one of them means that without a match, it refers to the whole phrase, okay? Just the three of you that were like, oh, great. Everybody else just pretend like that made a lot of sense, okay? I'm just trying to show you the work so you know I'm not making this up because it's important. Uh, accordingly, it says, this points to the whole process of salvation by grace through faith as being the gift of God and not something that we can accomplish ourselves. The use of the neuter pronoun to take in the whole of a complex idea is quite common in Greek and its use here makes it clear. This is the, the, this is the like, this is the, the, the end exclamation point. Its use here makes it clear that faith no less than grace is a gift of God. Salvation, therefore, in every respect, is not your own doing. So here's the picture. The boat pulls up. You do not make a heroic leap through faith onto the deck. They jump in after you. They tie a rope to your hand. They drag you out of the window, pull you onto the deck, and you're like, wow. That is, is intended in the phrase, this is not your own doing. And Paul fears that we may not get the point yet, still giving off too much main character energy. Verse 9, he includes this, not a result of work so that no one may boast, right? There's, there's not meant to be anything in salvation that we would be able to look back on and go, I did that. God did 90%, I did the 10. God did 99%, I did the one. God did 99.99999% and I did the .0000001. And it was a little heroic, just a little, right? I mean, I mean, obviously everything here, great. Love the work, God, excellent. But this moment, man, that was, was, was pretty good, right? There, there's none of that. There is not meant to be any room for boasting. Look, uh, Brian Chappell summarizes this in a, in a wonderful way in his commentary, talking about how we have no ground for boasting over and against one another or in our salvation at all. So he pictures it this way. Imagine that a plane goes down in the Pacific Ocean, and on the plane, there are three survivors. There's a guy that can barely swim, and I'm uh, sorry, all the, all the life rafts and stuff sink. I don't know why, but that's just what happens. So there's three guys in the water. One guy can barely dog paddle, and he is like freaking out. Second guy, look, he swims a couple times a week for half hour to an hour. I mean, he's, he's, he's relatively fit for a, you know, for a, kind of a three times a week swimmer. And then there is an Olympian. It is, you know, I don't know, insert your favorite Olympian there, Michael Phelps or somebody. Long distance swimmer would be preferred here. Uh, and... And the, the Olympian looks at the other two and goes, guys, we can do this. I know right there, if we swim east, the shore of California will be here at some point. We just have to keep swimming, keep trusting, keep pushing, do our best, dig deep. Gives them the whole Nike, just do it speech, sponsored by Nike. And he says, let's go. And so they are like, all right, or the, we, we have no choice. We're going to do this. So the dog paddler, I mean, he is, he is falling behind. He's struggling. He's freaking out. He makes it like an hour. Boom, down to the bottom of the ocean. The Olympian looks at the other guy and is like, now look, this is what you've been training for. Three times a week, 
this is what we've been training, this is what you've been training for, you can do this. And so the guy lasts an hour, two hours, three hours, even four hours. I mean, he is getting to the end of his strength, but he is just, he's just swimming. And he looks up and he's expecting to see California, more ocean. So he sinks down, bottom of the ocean. The Olympian goes like, look, all of my life, I have trained to be an Olympic athlete. I've trained to swim. I feel more comfortable in the water than on the land. This is my moment. This is going, like, this will put me into the annals of history. I survived, swam to California. Let's go. So he digs deep. 10 hours, 11 hours, 12 hours, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 20, 24, 30. And finally, at hour 36, he just physically can't move anymore, looks ahead, not doesn't see California, swims to the bottom of the ocean, meaning he, he drowns. Um, the, he gets there, and if you could look at their progress on a map, you would see, here's the down plane, here's the coast of California, here's the dog paddler, bloop, here's the, uh, you know, three times a week swimmer, bloop, here's the Olympian, bloop, and here is California. Now, in that moment, are any of them is there room for any of them to boast about their accomplishment? Is there room for the Olympian to go like, well, at least I got a lot further than those guys? No, he's dead, right? Like, well, I did get further. No, you're still dead. That's what Ephesians 2 is laying out. All of us on the bottom of the ocean floor. And if anybody brings us from the ocean floor back up and quickens our hearts and makes us alive and pays for our sins and seats us with Christ, all of that, Paul is wanting to make absolutely explicit, is not the result of works, meaning anything we do so that no one can boast. But Paul is absolutely going after that part in our heart that's like, but, 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 it, but it should be about me. And do you know why God saves in such a way that it eliminates that? Because that, that is the spark, in a sense, of sin. That's the spark of saying, I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to my, make myself look good. I want the universe to revolve around me. And unless that is utterly eliminated in the way that we're saved, well, we're going to end up right back where we were, in a sense. And so salvation from first to last, from A to Z, is none of us and all of him. And look, the, the reason this makes such a difference is this. This humbles everybody. Christianity is not a, a contest of people trying to see how good they can be compared to others. Or maybe we're in here much better than the people out there. Ugh, the nasty, ugly, terrible world out there. You watch the news. Ah, those people. Ah, they're at it again. That political party. Ah, Unbelievable. Not like me. I'm a good person, you know? And, and why do you keep watching it? Because every time you do, there's a little bit of, yeah, I'm a little bit better than that guy. I'm better than him too. Oh, I didn't kill anybody. Oh, that guy definitely better than him. When it comes to salvation, we're all humbled. None of us can boast. Humanity lives in a constant struggle to be a better hero than the next person, to compare our accomplishments, our looks, our spouses, our houses, our careers, our running times, our deadlifts. That's for somebody here. Uh, uh, <laughs> constant comparison. Us, them, us, them, us, them. And Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 and 2 are built to remind us all of grace, none can boast. And this is my burden for us as a church. I want us to be as a church a people constantly humbled by the grace in our name. 
Cross of Grace should never be a place where anyone walks in subtly thinking, I'm a little bit better than that person at least. Nor should we ever look at somebody who walks in those doors and think, well, we're a little bit better than that person at least. Or that next church or that next group. No. (laughs) We are people who found ourselves in the bottom of the ocean, all of a sudden breathing in air, made alive by the grace of God. No room for boasting. I would love it if, if, if we were just known as the, the people that just can't believe, the church where people can't believe they're saved every week. We just show up again. I can't believe it. Look at that. I can't believe it. That our doctrine or our methodology or nothing about us would make us feel better than others. None of us, all of him. Second point. That was the first longer point. Saved by, second point, saved through. Saved through. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I jumped my bed. I got my pages mixed up. We got to do saved by. Otherwise, the saved through won't make sense. Uh, second point, saved by. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We'll get to that in a second. It is the gift of God. Now, Paul, he has already talked about grace a lot. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, man, I thought we already went over grace in verse one of chapter one. And then last week, we spent a whole message on grace And now you're doing another point about grace. What is the deal? Let's move on. You know why we're not going to move on? Because of this. Because as many times as grace occurs in the book of Ephesians, we will preach grace again. Why? Because Paul knows that is what our hearts need. That apart from grace, we drift back into, well, I did a little bit. Well, I'm a little bit better than, no, no. And he uses this vivid picture now. It is the gift of God. Now, we've talked about how how grace is basically the gap. It's the difference between what we deserved and what we received from God. We've talked about grace being God's unmerited favor. So here's the gap between what we deserve and what we receive. And and all of a sudden, God, in unmerited favor, who had been turned away from us because of our injustice, turns toward us in favor. That is amazing. But now it goes further. Grace, then, is the gift of God. Listen, one of the the most vivid illustrations of this, I think I've used once or twice before, but I cannot find a better illustration, so I'm just going to keep using it, um, is from the beginning of the novel, the Victor Hugo novel, Les Miserables. If you remember Les Miserables, uh, if you've seen the musical or you even, if you've always thought it was called Less Miserables, that's okay. It doesn't matter. I thought it was that until uh, age 30 or so. And so the beginning of the novel and the story, this criminal is kind of out almost on parole, and he's staying in the home of a priest, and while he's there, he decides, you know what, I'm already bad, I'm just gonna steal all the priest's silver, the candlesticks and all that, I'm gonna steal that, take off. Unfortunately, on his escape route, he gets caught, and they bring him to the priest, and the priest immediately, obviously he knows, the guy, he brought him into his home. He stole all of his valuables, these silver candlesticks in particular. And the guy, you know, the, 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 the inspector brings them. It's just like, hey, I'm just confirming. He did steal these, right? All right, back to jail for him. And the priest comes out and goes, oh, my friend. So good to see you again. And the inspector says, well, but this guy is telling us that uh, you gave him the candlesticks. Is that right? And the priest says, oh, of course, of course. 
a gift for one of my friends. He says, in fact, you've forgotten some of the things I intended to give to you. Goes back into the house, essentially gets the rest of the silver, brings it, gives it to the man. The guy, Jean Valjean's mouth is agape. The inspector's like, wow, okay, well, I guess if it's a real gift, then there's nothing to do here. He walks off. And there's this beautiful picture in the novel. Jean Valjean is, is standing there holding these valuables that he stole, but all of a sudden have been made a gift to him, and more has been added to him. And that changes his life forever. Where in that moment, he deserved justice. In that moment, he deserved to go back to jail. But instead, what he receives is unmerited favor. And not just unmerited favor, which is what he received the night before, but an unmerited gift to him. That's what Ephesians 2 is telling us. Not only do you not get what you should get, not only does God turn towards you in favor, he gives you the gift of salvation. Church, this makes such a difference as you think about your life. Remember that that our world is built on, well, I do this, so I am this. I'm saved by my merit. I've saved by, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I look like. This is what I've accomplished. I've saved by, this is who I am. This is my merit. And Christianity says, no, that's death. Because you live your life constantly up and down. This is the way I look today. This is the way I looked yesterday. You know, this is what I've accomplished today. This is what I have not accomplished. This is who I am. This is my identity. Trying to work out, in a sense, an identity that will bring us salvation, which is death is all we get from that. Instead, what God does is he gives us the gift of grace by which we are saved. So this makes every difference. When you relate to God then, you do not come to him with a collection of this is what I've done and this is what I haven't done. What does that get me? Do I get close to salvation today? He gives you the gift of salvation. Look, brother, sister, I do feel like God's pushing on this with somebody here. If, if you... Fear going to God in prayer when you've sinned, you don't get grace. When you've messed up, made a mess of your life, and you're afraid to pray until you do a few more good deeds, you don't get grace. Grace is you come with all the mess to the Lord and ask for his help, and he gives you what you could not get on your own. And then it makes Every difference, not only vertically, but horizontally. Everything else in Ephesians flows from this truth that we are saved by grace. And when that happens, people do not get to relate the way that the world relates. The way the world relates is, here's who I am, here's what I've done, here's what I've earned, and then you compare. Here's who I am, here's what I've done, here's what I've earned, and you go to war. Look, this is, this is marriage apart from grace. Here's the things I've done. Here's the things you've done. Who wins? And Ephesians 5 is utterly transformed because what Paul does is he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning by grace, God gave himself himself to you in salvation. Therefore, you give grace to your spouse. He then applies it to parenting. He applies it next week into the the complicated world of racial uh, uh, tension. Of who, who gets to be the, the best race, the best ethnicity, the, 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 most, you know, the most meritorious? Who, who gets this? Who wins here? Paul says, not, nobody does. Everybody, nobody boasts. Everybody receives grace. That changes everything. And look, this is my heart here. Again, 
church. At Cross of Grace, my deep burden today is that we be a church that refuses to keep score. That we do not relate to one another going, well, this is what I've done and this is what you've done. That in our marriages, we're not keeping a subtle list. And if you don't think you're keeping a list, just wait till you get into a conflict with your spouse and all of a sudden you're like, well, let me get the old notepad out. And you're like, three weeks ago, you said you were gonna do this and you didn't. And two weeks ago, uh, I was gonna do this and then you interrupted me. And this, you know, all of a sudden, you're like, well, I don't keep score. It'll come out, okay? But if we are saved by grace, it takes the list, crumples it up, and throws it away. That we would relate to one another that way in the church. That when we're frustrated with one another, when there's inevitable conflict with one another, we go refusing to boast, holding out grace for one another, the same grace that we've received ourselves. That's saved by, briefly now, saved through. Saved through, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now this is an important, a small but important point, that, that we receive the gift of grace in such a way that we cannot boast about it through faith. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, right? God helps those who help themselves. You know who came up with that? The Greeks. Because their gods were indifferent losers that you had to basically do some stuff and hope that it would attract the attention of one of the gods to come, kind of come in and say, you know what, he actually is doing a pretty good job and help you. And yet we carry that so often into our Christian faith. Well, I gotta do this. So God, I mean, God has all that grace, but I need to almost unlock it with some kind of merit or, or, or work to get the gates to open. Hey, here's, the, here's all the grace of salvation, but, but the key I'm using is my own merit or good works. And Paul says, no. Listen to this from the expository commentary. He says this, note, note that we are saved because of or on the basis of grace, which is attained by means of or through faith. We are not saved because of or on the basis of faith. Faith does not save anyone. Only the grace we receive because of Christ's atonement saves us. Faith is merely the instrument by which grace is received. Similar, I love this illustration, similar to a syringe that delivers life-saving medicine. A person is saved not because, of the, uh, not because of the syringe, but because of the medicine. And yet without the syringe, i.e. faith, salvation would not be possible. Faith is the response by which salvation through the perfect work of Christ is received. Look, no syringe walks around thinking, yep, boop, kill, I, I cured malaria, right? Boop, I was, in a, I was a very impressive course of antibiotics, you know? I cured that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy, all me. no. The syringe is not doing the work. It is the medicine inside. Similarly, it's not as though when we believe with faith, we're doing anything heroic. The picture I get in my mind is that picture in The Sandlot. If you've ever seen that movie, The Sandlot, please rewatch it before you share it with your kids. It has some swearing and stuff. Um, but the, everybody always thinks the movies they grew up watching didn't have anything bad, and then they watch them, and they're like, oh, man. Yeah, so just... Life tip. But there's this great scene in the Sandlot where this kid can't play baseball. None of the ba other baseball kids want to let him play because he's truly terrible. And so the one really, really, really good kid tells him, here's what you do. Walk out into the field and, and just stick your glove up. And the guy's like, walk out into the field and stick my glove up? He's like, yep, do it. 
So he does. He walks out into the field and just thinks, this is, this is not going to work. I'm going to be humiliated because he can't catch, right? So he walks out into the field, and I think if I remember right, he closes his eyes, doesn't he, and sticks his glove up. And there's this big shot of him in a giant field with one like, little glove here, and he's, he's got his hand open. And so the guy throws the ball in the air and hits it, and you're just thinking, oh, no. And everybody's looking at him like, well, this kid's a loser. He's not going to catch this. And he just, he has his glove up in the air, and the ball sails through the air, bam, into the glove, and hard enough that basically his, his, his hand involuntarily grabs it. And everybody goes, ah, he can play. All right, come on, man. You know, and so he's in. From that moment on, he's in with that group of friends, right? Now, here's, would he in that moment put his glove up, catch the pitch, and go, booyah, nailed it. Who wants some? Nobody, right? Nobody's doing that. He, he's not going to do that. He's fully aware that there's just, I mean, he's fully aware that he didn't do any of that, and there's just relief and joy on his face, on his face. Uh, faith is like a 14th slip there. Faith is that moment by which we stick the glove in the air and Christ does it all. Saved through faith. Not through merit, not through works, but through faith. And let me just encourage you today. If you are not a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean go out and do 100 good deeds and come back and we'll check your merits like your grades. It means this. You put your glove into the air and say, I can't do it. I'm dead. I need help. God, please help me. I believe who you say you are. You are who you say you are. I believe you sent Christ to the cross for my sins. Please make me alive. Please. I'm, I'm turning my life over to you. Look, none of that is a work, is it? None of that is heroic. All of that is going... Lord, help me. And the happy surprise that nobody, if I could say it this way, nobody who puts their glove up in the air in faith, in desperate faith, is ever disappointed. Believe today in faith, friend. All right, very briefly, last, saved to. We're saved from something, but we're also saved to something. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved just from something. We are saved for something and to something. And this is so important, okay, because our culture's default view is that we fashion ourselves into an appropriate main character, the main character that we want. We choose the rules for our lives, our sexuality, our gender expression, our relationships, the way we respond to others, our wardrobe, right, the, the gym we go to, even the church we go to at times are all accessories of who I am. But the reality is, as we saw earlier in Ephesians 2, all that leads to, what, what it's supposed to lead to, is joy, peace, satisfaction, and fulfillment. Look around at our culture. We have more money and more ability to fashion ourselves into whatever we want than any culture in world history. And are you walking outside and seeing insanely happy people that just can't believe how happy they are and how peaceful they are and how joyful they are? Anybody else experiencing that? I'm not experiencing that. Turn on the news if you think people are experiencing that. Like, nope, that, that, All it leads is to deadness and death. And here's why. Here's why. Some background is important here. Genesis 1 and 2 lays out this backdrop to all of Scripture, and Ephesians 2 in particular, that, that God created us with a purpose, with a design. And it was beautiful. 
a beautiful design. The word uh, workmanship here is actually a word that means master work. Genesis 1 and 2 says that we're made in the very image of God. That word workmanship is poemia, which, from which we get the English word poem. God created a thing of beauty. He didn't create humanity or each human being as just, well, here's a rough table that, you know, whatever, it's there. Now, every human being, a masterwork made in the image of God with glorious intent and glorious purpose. But in Genesis 3, humanity says, nope, we want the pen of the story. We're going to design ourselves. We're going to pursue our own happiness. We're going to rule. We want to be sovereign. And where does that get us? Deadness. So in salvation, what God does is he essentially rewinds the clock back through Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 and 2 and restores us to this glorious, beautiful, masterwork purpose that is God's intent for every single saved person. He intends, brother and sister, that you in Christ become a masterwork with beautiful intent and beautiful purpose. And you don't have to go over there and be like, I need to make my part in the story. No, God has a glorious, beautiful part for you in his story if you are willing to let him reshape you and refashion you into this thing of beauty. Look, this is the purpose of God. And, and, and let me just say this. The thing... I talked about Les Miserables earlier. The character of Jean Valjean from that moment, the priest actually tells him in that moment something that I think is glorious. The priest tells him as he hands him the rest of the silver stuff, the priest tells him, with this I have bought your soul for God. And from that moment, Jean Valjean is a different man. When grace changes him, he's a different man. And the, the whole rest of the story is him essentially helping other characters, rescuing other characters, um, uh, serving other characters, all because he experienced grace himself. His life is rewritten away from just being a common criminal to being a glorious masterwork character, one of the greatest characters in all literature, right? And sometimes we're like, well, I don't know if God's gonna write me a good part. He made the Grand Canyon, I don't know if you've noticed that. He made the galaxies above you. He made endless wonders and beauties and wants you to become one of them. This is what I want to say, friend. Give him the pen of your life. This is what Ephesians 2 is about, us giving up the pen of our life and allowing God to shape our story, that we might do good works, that we should walk in the works that God has for us. Let me end with this. Uh, two things. One, who's the main character of Les Miserables? Who's the one that sets off the chain reaction? Often we think, well, that's, it's obviously Jean Valjean. He's the guy that the whole book is built around. No. Perhaps it's right to say that the, in the entire orbit of everything that happens in Les Miserables is built not around Jean Valjean, but around the priest who shows him the act of mercy. Or perhaps it would be better to say, well, perhaps not the priest either, because where did the priest learn it from? Where would the priest learn the act of radical grace given to a sinner who does not deserve it? And in that way, the main character of that entire story, entire novel, is probably the one that first introduced the idea of radical grace to humanity in the first place, Jesus Christ. 
So friend, as, as we go today, let me, let me, let me end with this. Um, when we try to live as main characters in our lives and make everything revolve around us, it is crushing. Uh, the, the New Yorker followed up and found the person who created the main character energy video. And it says this, for a few months after her viral hit, she tried to ride the momentum and become a successful creator, making new videos constantly because influencers have to be main characters around the clock. And then her post tapered off and she says this, it just wasn't fun anymore. There was a lot of pressure. Look, I think one of the things that Ephesians 2 is it first confronts us and says, you can't be the main character of the story. But when we receive that truth, oh church, it is freeing. Spring. We don't have to come every day and come up with what am I going to do, who am I going to be, to be loved, to matter, to mean something. We show up every day in Christ with God inclined toward us, ready to give us gifts, ready to reshape us into something beautiful. Oh, isn't that such a better story? Isn't that such a better way to live? Would you stand? And we're going we're gonna, to uh, pray together. Actually, no, don't stand. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I did this wrong. Uh, that's my, my head talking here. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a quiet moment, and then we're going to end by singing, but first we're going to take communion. So uh, if you have the elements near you, please take those elements. And we're going to receive these elements together. And if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to refrain, but to see this as an invitation, that this is God's gift to you. This little cup, as silly as it feels, is God's offering to you. Now, if you've not received that gift of salvation, don't, don't partake in the elements. But see it, even on your seat, as God's gift offered to you. For brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ, let's remember the words of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you I'll please take the bread in your hand brother and sister as you hold it you hold the very gift of God unearned undeserved unmerited but freely given the body of the son of God himself for you. Please take the bread. And Father, we receive it with gratefulness and joy. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, as you take the cup in your hand, this is the very gift of God for you. As we do it, we remember his blood shed for us on the cross. What greater gift could be given? And yet it is freely offered for you. Please take the cup. And please stand with me. And Lord, I pray that as we sing, 
at the end, Lord, you would minister to two groups. First, you'd minister to those who feel unworthy or unloved, even though that they are in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we sing, as we sing their story, they would remember that they do not arrive every day into the day waiting to merit, waiting to matter, hoping to matter. But they arrive at the break of every day loved, saved, made alive, showered with mercy, and that their standing is secure in you. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who struggle to give you the pen of our lives to say, I'm going to be whatever you want me to be. Lord, I pray that as we remember and rehearse the gospel story, we would see how much you love us, how far you've gone to save us, and in light of that, joyfully, gladly give you the pen of our lives to do with it as you will. Amen.